What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! New Orleans is often described as a city with a living past. This is because the people who live in New Orleans continue to keep alive cultural traditions and historical narratives. It's known for its strength and resilience. NOLA also has extensive defenses against the elements of nature, with 350 miles of levees designed to hold back rising waters and stormy weather. And with these levees are structures known as floodgates. When storms came to the band Exhorter, singer Kyle Thomas remembered his traditions of jamming with his brother. So with the resilience his city is known for, when one levee broke, another floodgate stood strong. This week on Meep Meep, Season 3 of 1996 continues with another 25th anniversary. Floodgate. Penalty. Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll. What up, what up, Meepsters? Today we have with us a two-time Tweety with Kyle Thomas. Kyle first signed on the Acme Acre line with his band Exhorter, who released a classic in 1990 entitled Slaughter in the Vatican. 1996 brought the debut of a different band entirely, however, Floodgate, formerly known as Penalty, and their album, Penalty, currently still known as Penalty. KT takes us through the origins and epilogues of the band, as well as stories about playing Sepultura's final shows with Max Cavalera in Europe and having a radio hit in Cleveland. Wait, is, is that what the brown note is? Exhorter ends, more or less. You try out for my local Carolina heroes, Corrosion of Conformity. You end up not joining Corrosion of Conformity and almost kind of immediately start writing songs with your brother under the name Penalty. Correct. And that also has a kind of a different lineup than Floodgate ends up having, but the same idea and some same songs, right? So can you tell me kind of just uh, fast forwarding to that that part of it, you know, uh, when Penalty is forming, what uh, were you and your brother always kind of like jamming when you were younger or what what spurred that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I had a head start on my brother with musical training. I took five years of private trumpet lessons, which I, I, I never did love the trumpet. I, I played the trumpet because it was the trumpet or nothing. I wanted to be a saxophone player. I, I just knew damn good and well I was going to get all the chicks if I started playing the saxophone. <laughs> and so my dad saw the price tag on the saxophone and was like, check out this trumpet, son. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I saw I saw it, you know, for what it was. It was if I wanted to play music, I'd better jump on this trumpet. So uh, I took the lessons. And though I didn't love it, I got very good at it. And um, it gave me something that I still carry to this day, which is my foundation of music fundamentals and just my ear for music in general. As a result, I literally, my, my, my meter is really good because I was taught at a young age, tap your foot to the rhythm with a metronome. And, and then we turn the metronome off and then we check back in with the metronome to see if you're still on. And I was blessed to have developed good meter that way. Um, you know, and, and just in general, I can walk up to just about any instrument. And if I can't play it fluently, I'm going to make it make noise some kind of way <laughs> just by tinkering around with it. You know, some better than others, but I'll figure it out, you know, because I know what the notes are. So, I, you know, I, I know what works with the other notes and doesn't. So I, that's not to say that I'm like a guy that could come in and teach somebody all these, you know, all the different scale, you know, uh, modes and scales and stuff. I, 
I'm not like a theory dude, but being able to jump on all those different things really helped me with my songwriting, to be honest with you. It did. So, so my brother and I did start learning together. He was taking guitar lessons. I was taking bass lessons, but we took them at the same time. So he would pay attention to my 15 minutes and I would pay attention to his 15 minutes. So then we go home and just, you know, you're tired of playing the guitar, here's the bass and vice versa. And we just kind of learned together at the same time. Um, I, I took off a little quicker than he did, but that was his first uh, embrace with learning a musical instrument. But, you know, my brother is the one he, he like on the floodgate album, anything that's in four, four or three, four, I, there's a good chance that I wrote it, but <laughs> if, <laughs> if it's in five, seven or 11, my brother wrote it. <laughs> Very cool. So that's that was going to be kind of uh, my follow up question, too, is, you know, um, were you actively involved in the songwriting more than just the the lyrical and vocal approaches? You actually like wrote the riffs and stuff like that. Originally, my intention with Floodgate was that I would be a major songwriter. And we just had two guitar players because that's what I knew. I knew being in a five piece with two guitar players and and I would just be the front man. And um there was a time when one of the guys that was jamming with us in the very beginning on guitar, he just kind of stopped showing up to practice. And I was kind of fed up with, you know, every time we go to practice, you know, he say he's going to be there and he wouldn't be there. So all of his gear was still sitting up there one night. And I was like, man, you know what? Screw this. So I plugged all his stuff in and started playing my songs that I was writing and teaching to this guy. I had such a connection with it, a moment. It was a really like kind of an epiphany for me musically that, that I could sing and write these parts at the same time. And everybody else that was there in the band at that time was just like, dude, yes, this is it. And that ended up being the lineup that went on to record the penalty album. So the original lineup is, of course, you and your brother, like we mentioned, and then you also have Kevin Bonds, right, who uh, went on to be yeah. in. Yeah, Kevin joined, super joint. Uh, before that, even really, Kevin and I recorded a demo under the name penalty before we were Floodgate, and Jimmy Bauer played drums on it. Uh, Jimmy played in the first two bands that I ever played in. We were teenagers. I think I was 15, and he was like, 16 17 and he played drums and i played bass in one band and then another one i sang and he played drums so i mean we've been like total like good friends our whole lives just about you know since we were teenagers and uh at the time he was not on tour with i hate god and down was getting ready to record uh the uh the nola record so he was like I had talked to him. He was like, man, Kevin and I are writing some stuff. You want to help us out with recording it so I can get a demo. And he's like, he's like, yeah, man, I'd love to. And he said, you know, I really need to get my chops up for the down album anyway. So it really makes sense. So we got with Jim for a few rehearsals, ironed out five or six songs and went in and cut a demo. Uh, just, you know, an old eight track home studio, nothing fancy is, you know, just a, a little something for us to have our songs on, but uh, the people really liked the demo. So uh, we started open doing opening slots and we started headlining our own shows. And next thing I knew I had uh, two or three different record labels looking at it. So when does uh, Stephen Fisher come into the picture as playing guitar? Steve came in. Uh, I want to say Steve might've even come in after Kevin, Kevin Bond, uh, uh, Kevin wasn't doing anything at all at the time. And he's an old friend of ours too. So uh, Steve, uh, he came at the recommendation of, um, of Chris Nail actually, because Chris, after Exhorter, Chris started playing with Basil's favorite hat, which was like a, more of like a, an alternative rock band, uh, you know, some punk influence, rock influence stuff glitter influence so uh they played together and chris knew i was putting this thing together and chris was like man why don't you why don't you talk 
to Steve. He's, he's really good. And I liked Steve, especially for that band, because he and I have really, really different playing styles. And I didn't want somebody that was really just in the same wheelhouse as me. Um, Cause I, I'm, I am a decent guitar player. Uh, I'm a better bass player, but I'm a decent guitar player, but I'm not like a guitar player by trade. I, you know, I play, I write songs and I play lead well enough to, to make it sing and, you know, nothing really fancy, but uh, for me, I, songwriting is, is where I, I would say my strength is with, with as far as the whole picture with music is I, I can hear the whole thing. And Steve came in uh, as a songwriter also, and he had a totally different approach uh, writing secondary guitar parts that were different from mine, but that complemented mine. And then we started figuring it out. And then we started writing, you know, like harmony parts together and, um, or I'd come up with a part to match a part that he wrote something to, but couldn't figure out how to get out of. And then Kevin and I and him uh, all would sit down in rehearsals and Neil too, for that matter, Neil Montgomery, the drummer. Uh, he, he was good at helping to round out the song and, and finalize everything. I think the best material we wrote was when we were all writing together. Uh, early on, it was me and either, either I wrote the entire song, Kevin wrote the entire song, or we wrote it together. But then gradually we started involving the newer people. And then, you know, it just kind of grew from there. Yeah, I noticed that, you know, everybody in the band does vocals uh, to some extent on the yeah. songs, which immediately made me think like, oh, this is a collaborative effort. So I think that's cool that you were able to, like you said, you had uh, these other uh, songwriters or people that could contribute in a way that you wouldn't be able to on your own. You're getting different elements that you couldn't organically produce on your own that complemented what you were doing. So I think that that, uh, that shines a lot on here, too. You can kind of hear the different influences without it sounding like it doesn't make sense. It was a relief for me, and and I, I got spoiled quickly because I haven't had the opportunity since. For any all original bands that I've been in, and I say that because I've been in a lot of cover bands too over the years. As far as original bands go, it's rare when you get more than one person, maybe two, that does a lot of singing. Most original musicians are content to get in their zone with their instrument and never learn how to sing. And it's frustrating to me because I write all these grandiose vocal parts with multi, multi-tracking, multi, you know, harmonies, chorus with a lot of people, a lot of voice required. And when I'm the only person that's willing to stand in front of a microphone, it's tricky. Or if, you know, someone is willing to stand in front of it, just doesn't, isn't really savvy at being a vocalist. But with Floodgate, my brother had sang with a band before, Steve, did a lot of singing with the bands he was in and Neil was a capable singer as well. So to me, it was like, oh shit, here, here we go. You know, when I write all these three part harmonies, two part harmonies, here's your part, here's your part. You sing, you know, something underneath just to thicken it up some. And I think it was really a breath of fresh air at the time because very few people were doing it where we were from for starters, but you don't, you just don't see it a lot. Um, not as much as I'd like to. And, and it's as a singer, the primary singer, you need as much help as you can get. You know, it's nice when you get somebody who will even take a whole song and give you a breather um, from time to time, uh, especially in those cover bands, because those long those are like four to six hour gigs sometimes. Well, I would think especially, too, when you're playing an instrument simultaneously versus like Exhorter when you're just the, not to say just the vocalist, but you know what I'm saying. You're you're not yeah. having to focus on two different rhythms at one time. Exactly. And and when you when I'm just a microphone in me, I can really put on more of the front man show thing than when I've got a guitar strapped to me. I, you can still front man, but there's a limitation that you don't have. So you signed with Roadrunner for the Floodgate album, or at the time it would have been the Penalty album, uh, the second of three times that Monty Connor will sign you in your life at this point. Because Exhorter, for those who may not know, Exhorter was on Roadrunner as well, and Exhorter on Nuclear Blast with Monty now, just to complete the right. trifecta there. But um, was your previous experience with Roadrunner 
the reason that you signed with them a second time or was it a hindrance to keep you from because you said multiple labels are looking at you so why is roadrunner the one you end up going with i left i'm not kidding and god bless monty he's a dear friend to me and i've got nothing but respect for him and we've been friends uh for a very long time but when he told me he wanted to sign then penalty i laughed i was i was so unhappy with that label because of the experience i had with exhorter on it um I, I felt like we didn't get a fair shake i think the owner really never did believe in us that much monty did and monty went to bat for us uh, at one point after slaughtering the vatican i think they wanted to drop us and he was like if they go i go if i remember correctly this is a story i've heard you know, might have to have monty corroborate this or or uh, or corrected <laughs> one of the two, <laughs> but, but it was, uh, they go, I go kind of. Thing. And then after the law, the owner came back to him and said, they got to go. And, you know, you had your free ticket with the, they go, I go thing. So he came to us and said that I put my neck on the block for you guys once, but if I do it again, this time I'm getting chopped. So I'm sorry. <laughs> and I don't, I don't blame him. I mean, it's his job, you know? And Lord knows who did a better job at developing metal in the United States than Monty Connor, you know? And so when he came to me with the proposal with, with flood for floodgate, well, at the time penalty, I was already talking to EMI. So I was like, I was really like looking for a major label. And, uh, you know, there was a little talk with century media. I think there was pavement records, which was a small record label that did the first crowbar album. I really had great expectations and, uh, a huge ceiling that I had in mind for, for this band. So I, I thought based on my experience with Roadrunner that it was just a terrible fit. And Monty told me, I will not give up until I convince you Roadrunner is the right label for you and you sign on the dotted line. And I said, pack a lunch, my friend. <laughs> so I have to hand it to him. He, he sold me. He, he, he proved to me why it would work. And had everything in his plan come to fruition, I think it would have. But, uh, you know, again, uh, I don't know what it was with that owner of that label, but he just, he didn't really have a whole lot of belief in any of my projects, I don't think. So as, as soon as he could get rid of me that time, he did. <laughs> You're talking about Sace, Wessels? Yeah. Well, so you do end up signing with Roadrunner. I know there's probably aspects of it that weren't what you wanted. So I'm not trying to uh, defend those, but I will say just based on purely what you told me, I don't know if EMI is going to let you put out an album with, you know, six and a half minute songs on there that they probably want a little bit more. I feel like they'd probably be a little bit more involved in, in not letting you do what you want to do. Well, Monty, as soon as he found out that I had uh, pretty much uh, a chubby for EMI, he, I think he figured out, that I had it for the wrong reasons, you know, he's like, why, why do you want to go with them? I said, well, it's major label, you know? And he said, what bands do they have that are comparable to you? And I said, um, Hmm, I don't know. And, uh, he said, think about it. He said, EMI is almost exclusively always been a pop label. Uh, they've really done very little rock with success. Uh, most of the bands that have been successful doing rock end up leaving them and going for a different label. And I'll be damned if maybe a month or two after Roadrunner started talking to us, uh, they did a, a major cleaning of the house at EMI and, and the, the guy who was vice president, uh, Fred Davis got fired and, uh, Mike Schnapp, who was my A&R guy, I can't remember if he got if he got fired also or if they just whoever took over wasn't interested in us anymore. So whatever happened, Mike had to let me know that EMI was not a uh, consideration for us anymore. So that really strengthened Roadrunner's game. And uh, funny thing is, Fred Davis, who was the VP that liked us at EMI, uh, he's Clive Davis's son. Uh, okay. He uh, before he did the work with EMI, he had his own law practice doing entertainment law. And um, 
he got in touch with me and said, you want me to do your contracts? And, uh, I said, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Roadrunner. The only people that weren't happy about that was Roadrunner. (laughs) So we had some kind of really, uh, lucrative deal for a band, a startup band at that time on an independent label. Our signing bonus was pretty significant and, um, I'm grateful for it because it's it's the biggest chunk of money I've ever seen handed over to me in rock and roll, you know, and we didn't we didn't blow it. You know, each of us took at the time twenty five hundred bucks to upgrade our equipment or to reimburse ourselves for equipment we bought already. What rock bands did Monty tell you that Roadrunner had that were comparable to you at the time? Uh, At the time, Roadrunner was had just had their first gold record with typo negative for uh, bloody kisses. And, you know, that's hard to ignore, even if you think maybe y'all just got lucky on this one, because I talked to their manager as he, Monty gave me their manager as a reference. And he said, he said, yeah, he said, I'm I'm not going to give you the, the most glowing review of, of the label. He said, that's probably why Monty wanted you to talk to me because wanted you to hear both sides of it. He said, yeah, we got our first gold record because I congratulated him. He goes, it could be platinum if Roadrunner was doing their job, right? And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So, you know, his his spin on it was they we need a label that's going to do more for us. But at the same time, here's Roadrunner on the other side saying, we got a band with a gold record. So, um, you know, they had a, a bunch of stuff that was doing well at the time. You had um, Fear Factory, uh, you had uh, Sepultura and Sepultura had just had a lot of success with Chaos AD and we're in the process of recording Roots when we did, you know, we're in the initial talks of our album. So, yeah, Roadrunner was literally at that point about to take over independent metal worldwide. And they were the label for a long time. Machine Head was another one. Machine Head was uh, just about re- to release their second album, I think, or had just released their second album. There's been a lot of commercial success within that label, of course. You know, that's every label has its failures as much as they have their, you know, glowing successes. But, uh, you know, I, I, I like to think that at the time, you know, having having lost the EMI thing and all of the other labels were independent and none of them were really on the upswing like Roadrunner. So we just said, let's just do it. Give it another chance. I'm, I'm not afraid. If, if everything goes off as they say it will, then we should be fine. And it started that way. And then it just did. It just, it didn't, man. They, I, I think what happened was you had the, the rise of new metal bands like Cold Chamber coming up. Uh, you know, it, it was, it was my understanding that, the money that they stopped putting into us, they started putting in the cold chamber, you know, and good for them. You know, uh, I, I don't fault them for that. They, that's not their fault. They just trying to make it like everybody else. But you know, at the time it was frustrating. It really, really was because I had been told you're going to be a priority band here. And I said, great, put it in writing. Well, I can't do that, but take my word for it. You're going to be a priority band. Okay. Well, we were at first, I think, cause they really, put a lot more money into it than they agreed to on contract, but the album kept going over budget and Monty believed in it. So he kept getting extensions with more money. And uh, at the end of the day, I think that album cost 60 grand. I didn't have as big of a hand in where all that money was being allocated and why. Uh, Again, I was pretty young. I I didn't run business for Exhorter back in the day. In the early days, I was, I was a drunk tripper looking for my next buzz, you know, and, (laughs) And just trying to be profound and, you know, somebody to to listen to and pay attention to of knowledge, you know, and, and <laughs> now, now today I'm I'm an old jaded man who, uh, you know, couldn't give a rat's ass if people agree with me or disagree with me. I just kind of do it my way. And and, you know, I've, I've actually learned a lot over the years of how to be a businessman in this industry, what not to do, most importantly, but. I think you get a little wiser over time and start maybe being uh, less self-absorbed and self-important. And it, it really takes 
uh, what's the old saying? It takes a village to raise a child. You know, there's, there's so much team that goes into making a band successful. And if one or two people are always the ones fighting over who's the final word or the most influential in the songwriting or the art process, I think once you lose that, that team thing, it, it it's, it's, it's going to be a short ride. So the band starts off, like you mentioned before, as Penalty and becomes Floodgate. Why was the name chosen as Penalty in the first place? Where does that come from? Uh, to be honest with you, it's one of the most difficult things to, to name a band. And at the end of the day, it really almost doesn't matter. You can make anything sound cool. You know, I always thought Kiss sounded cool because you see the logo Kiss with the S's and Kiss. And, you know, but if you think about it, it's it's a really weak name kiss you know it's like it's not a strong name but it is strong because kiss is strong and you know the imagery is what sold it so you know humble pie what what a great band but you know if the band wasn't great it would have been a terrible name for a band (laughs) so there we were just knocking ideas around and i don't see if i can if i remember correctly i think my mother recommended the word penalty i think she said penalty phase she had seen something on tv about court a trial and they said something about the penalty phase she said what about penalty phase and penalty phase no and then we were like what about penalty that's strong and so we settled on penalty and we were really in love with the name and we started growing tremendously with that name right right and then you find out that there's this clothing line this kind of like soccer apparel line in uh in south america called penalty right so then you have to make a a new decision i think roadrunner offered to buy the license out for them because they own the worldwide trademark so they they wanted you know offered them some money to license it out and they wouldn't do it they said they you know y'all can sell cds and records or whatever all day long but you're not selling the shirt that's got penalty on it so it's like, okay. Uh, and, and I really wanted them to fight harder for us than they did, but they gave up pretty quickly. They didn't want to spend any more money on it. They said, come up with a new name or your deal's dead. So then we're back to the drawing board. Got to come up with a new name. My label wouldn't fight for me. Fuck. So, you know, we came up with names and everybody in the band would love it, but Monty didn't like it or, you know, vice versa. Monty came to us with names and we're like, dude, get that name out of here. It's terrible. And then he came to me one day with floodgate and he said, you know, it's got a you know, strong new Orleans tie because y'all have the floodgates down there from the seawall at the lake and by the river, you know, I said, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm hearing this. And then in one of the, one of the lyrics to, uh, to the song imitation salvation, to, even with the level of the floodgates, And so I was like, well, it's already in the album. Floodgate is already here. So that's what we decided to go with. And then I said, what about, I said, is it going to be a problem with the trademarking to name the album penalty? I said, no, because that's going to be a secondary name on there, not a primary name. And it, it, it'll slip through the cracks on that. It's like, okay, well, that way we can at least avoid some of the confusion of changing the band name. We've created this buzz as penalty. So if there's floodgate and it says penalty, there's at least still penalty on there. And it's, it didn't make a difference, man. I had, I had people tell me it's, it's a shame that like uh, one of the journalists from back then that wrote for rip told me she went to a party and uh, an industry party. And someone came up to her and said, whatever happened to that band penalty, man, everybody was waiting for that album to come out. She's like, it came out a year ago. It was, uh, they had to change the name to Floodgate, but the album's called Penalty. And the person was like, wait, so the band's not Penalty, but the album's Penalty? Uh, walked away confused. So I think we lost a lot of momentum having to change that name. And, you know, because they, they put so much money into it, into the artwork and the, the jewel cases, the, the booklets, all that stuff. Uh, I, I think 
the fact that it didn't come out selling a lot and they, they didn't want to put money into advertising and stuff. So like they just dumped all this money into recording an album and then kind of, kind of backed out on it right as it was being released and just kind of let it do what it was going to do on its own organically. And that's a death knell for an album. You know, the, the best thing that happened to us after that was we had a handful of shows with typo negative in the States. And then we got direct support with Sepultura on the roots tour in Europe. So we're playing arenas, you know, but Roadrunner kind of fought us on that. They didn't want to spend the money to put us on that. It's like, are you crazy? You know, we, we got some serious exposure. Our, our album was charting in the UK while we were on that tour, while we were in the UK. So it was like, you know, some places we go to and it was kind of like crickets, you know, people didn't know what to think. And then we go to the UK and we got, you know, theaters and arenas where people are just losing their minds because we're on the charts. So we thought, well, this is, at least we have this to build off of. And Roadrunner, when we finished that tour, said, you're going to have to tour the States on your own money and we're not putting any more money into this. And then maybe a year later, they dropped us. And Roadrunner originally wanted a different band on that Sepultura tour, right? But uh, the Cavaleras requested you Cap- by name? Uh, Chris Nail, a former drummer of Exhorter, was actually Floodgate's manager at the time. And he called me one night with great news, man. I just got a phone with Gloria Cavalera. They specifically requested to get Floodgate on this tour because the Deftones have to drop off. So we're all like, yeah, this is great. This is the greatest thing ever. Well, the next day I talked to Chris and he's like, I'm not sure what's going on. He said, but I, I talked to uh, your rep at the label for the touring side. And he did not sound very excited about this. And he said, hang on, let me talk to some people. And then maybe an hour or two later, Gloria Cavallera called Chris going, what the hell's going on? And Chris was like, I don't know. You tell me. She said, well, I asked you guys if you want to do the tour. And today I've got somebody from your record label calling me and trying to get another band on this tour. So I'm living. I'm freaking up to here. I had it. So I called Monty. What the fuck is going on, man? And um, and finally, we get down to the bottom of it. Yeah, the, uh, there were there were a handful of parties at the label that didn't want us on that tour even though even though the cavalera camp requested us so but instead of saying just saying no they went back door and called them and said hey uh you know what about this band you know (laughs) so i don't know it was just it was to me it was kind of a classless move on their part well you should have named the album formerly known as penalty do you want to go back and reissue it (laughs) (laughs) right at this point, you know, I, I wish I had the rights to it. It was going to be called Dry Rivers Bleed because uh, on our first demo, one of the songs was called Dry Rivers Bleed. And we all just thought it was a really cool. In fact, I had designed an album cover uh, that I got with an artist friend of mine. Um, and we had like a dry river bed with hammerhead sharks swimming over the dry river bed, like in the air. And, you know, this crazy sky going on in the background, it was called dry, like the cracked riverbed, dry rivers bleed. And it was like red, kind of blood red color throughout it. But I thought it was really cool to have the hammerhead sharks going just over the, you know, the, the, the bed of the river with it cracked. and co- It was really cool, but Roadrunner didn't like that either. So. So the album art is done by Dave McKean, who does a lot of legendary album covers for Roadrunner. Did you have any sort of one-on-one uh, collaboration with him on what that album cover was, or he just kind of presented no. something? If you had asked me who did that album cover art, I would have never been able to answer the question. I've just forgotten. It's been so long. Oh. Um, uh, there were a lot of artists that I did talk with that Roadrunner gave me samples of and stuff, and... Uh, we liked a lot of it and some of it not so much, but uh, when from the moment that Monty sent that artwork over, I was like, this is it. This is it. I mean, it was I'm a shark fanatic. So to me, to have the whole shark theme tied in with 
heavy metal, rock and roll, whatever it was at the time that we were playing. Uh, I, I, I liked it. I thought that it was a perfect fit. And uh, to this day, I, I think that that artwork still kind of stands the test of time. That's some pretty far out imagery, I think. Yeah, the like uh, what the shark jaw skeleton underneath the disc, too, is really cool. Yeah, yeah. So you got that. You've got, you know, the, the lifeguard station on the back, uh, the person on the back with the shark eyes. It's, you know, it's all cool stuff, I think. Speaking of the back, let's talk about this style you guys had in 96, the, the floodgate style. You got the shirts tucked into the pants. You're looking very, <laughs> <laughs> very like you're ready for the Sadie Hawkins dance. What, what was that? Uh, that thought process like is that just how you guys dressed back then that was just you, who you were fashions were such at the time that that uh that there was a little bit of that and we all had the waistline to do it so okay. that helps but yeah you, today if we did a floodgate reunion you probably would not see one shirt tucked in <laughs> <laughs> or it would be uh that shirt that you see the infomercials in the like easy tuck that doesn't come untucked you know what i'm talking about <laughs> yes Yes. Yeah, that was definitely the fashion at the time. Uh, you know, cool belts, tight jeans and maybe a long sleeve shirt kind of flared but tucked in. So it, it was it was sort of like a revisit to the 70s. The 70s style was just coming back in again. And I was talking to one of my kids about that the other day. He was like, you know, the 70s is in right now. I said 70s comes in and goes out faster than all of them but it always comes back. Like, you know, the eighties, I think the eighties comes in fashion comes in when everybody's tired of the other stuff making it's come out. You know, if, if the fifties look is in, it goes out in the eighties comes back, you know, uh, and then the seventies, but like, I, I think the seventies probably has the longest mainstay uh, uh, staying power of all the, the fashions. I don't know why, but it, it definitely in rock and roll. I, I, I've been, I've been a victim of so much circumstance throughout my career. And, you know, some of it was rather unfortunate and some of it was probably, you know, due to poor decision-making on my part or lack of effort. So, you know, it's, I'm not without fault that I'm not a household name with freaking a, a bankroll. that's you know, out of this world and too much money to count, you know, it, so many things come into play. You, you, you gotta be good. You gotta work hard and you gotta have, support and luck and this all those things come into play and when they all hit at the same time you get you know you get your most successful bands over over time but uh you know i, I can't say i haven't I, I do a lot of things i've done a lot of things that many of my friends growing up only dreamed about you know so i i can't complain about where i've been and what i've done uh but i'm not finished I got a lot left to do. So Eli Ball is the producer of the album. How did that come to be? Uh, Eli had, uh, my first choice was Max Norman. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Max Norman's work. Uh, I look up to him greatly. It's, it's funny because now we're friends and, you know, there's always that 12 year old kid in me going, I can't believe I'm friends with Max Norman, you know, but, you know, we, we've worked together in the studio in my adult life. So like, I feel like I can die now, but <laughs> uh, that was my first choice at the time. I don't think the budget allowed for uh, us to get somebody as high profile as Max. I think he had just recently done. Uh, uh, he mixed rust in peace and had just produced the most recent negative album at the time. So it was really, really, you know, an upper tier producer so then we just started shopping producers that we could afford. And uh, what was it? Every Mother's Nightmare. Was that the band? Mother's Day Out. Mother's Day Out. That's what it was. Mother's Day Out. And then there was there was another one, one or two bands that he had done. And we listened to it was like, you know, these are pretty good sounding um, productions, you know, for what for what he's charging, what we know and what he knows, we can make a good sounding album. And I, I, I love Eli. I do. Uh, I saw him for the first time, maybe two or three years ago. Uh, we had dinner. It was weird. Like he, he was in town. He's like, man, you want to come have some drinks, uh, you know, with me and the wife. And I know his wife well also. And 
so my wife and I were like, yeah, let's go meet them. And, and he said, well, it, it just turned into dinner. I was like, okay, well, you know, that's fine. We can meet you for dinner. And he goes, it just turned into dinner with Leo Nocentelli from the meters. <laughs> like, are you kidding? So there we were having dinner with, with Leo from the meters, his wife and Eli and, and his wife and my wife. And I, and it's like, I, I'm, I'm born and raised in New Orleans. So the meters is like, that's royalty here. So, you know, I'm like trying my best to just play it cool and, you know, I've never met this guy and, you know, he was very nice. His wife was very nice. And, uh, but it was funny. It was like, all of a sudden I'm like, I'm not even close to the biggest freaking success at this table musically. <laughs> we worked well with Eli. He was maybe 10, 12 years old. And that's so still young enough to be in our mindset. And, uh, you know, really knew his way around the studio, his assistant and uh, first assistant engineer was Ryan Dorn, who, produced the first ugly kid joe record um and ryan's ryan's a really really good engineer uh lost touch with him over the years but i really like that guy and uh that, there were times where we clashed heads in the studio but we always made it work out and compromised with each other and um i can't say that the penalty album came out exactly how i envisioned it but over time i think it's aged very well it's a strong rock album and I, I mean there's people all over the world that tell me this is like you know uh top 10 desert island albums for me you know <laughs> like wow thank you you know and i tell you that's an album that the louder you turn it up the better it sounds and <laughs> it, it doesn't always work that way sometimes you turn them up and they start breaking up and it sounds terrible but you can keep turning that thing up and it just sounds better and better I didn't realize that until we were mixing it at A&M Studios in L.A. and Bill Kennedy was mixing it and he pointed it out, goes, listen to this. He's like, now pay attention as I turn it up. And it was like it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, but wider and clearer. And it was the most insane thing. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I've, I've had my. Uh, I, I shed tears over how that album came out because it wasn't what I envisioned, but that was when I was much younger today. When I was listening to it, I, I think it sounds the way it's supposed to. Well, I wanted to go through some of the songs on the album as well, just because uh, like you said, some people consider this a, an instant classic. So I wanted to know a little bit more about maybe some of the, uh, the lyrical content or even just kind of making the songs. Uh, the first song shivering is interesting because it right off the bat lets you know, this is not exhorter, right? Like it's you kind of crooning anybody that was expecting yeah. Kyle from exhorter is immediately educated that that's not what they're in for. And I think it's probably one of the more soulful sounding vocal performances on the whole record, but also it kind of sounds like it's about like drug withdrawals. At the time I wasn't like in any kind of danger of being like a major addict, other than the fact that I'd been drinking since I was 12 years old. <laughs> I know that sounds stupid, but that's that's pretty normal in greater New Orleans that at that time, you know, most everybody grew up sipping on their parents beers and stuff. But, uh, you know, I mean, I drank, I smoked herb uh, and I had really just at the time started kind of tinkering around with trying pills and this and that, you know, and other things like I, I was never like terribly into like I, I, I never was a heroin guy. Uh, and, you know, that's no knock against anybody who who was. And I don't think I'm better for it because Lord knows I had my bout with opiates over pills uh, past past the uh, the floodgate days. But um, more than anything, that song was inspired by uh, I, I guess most of my teenage years, I was a pot smoker, like a lot of teenagers. Uh, but towards the end of my teens and early 20s, I started getting uh like I'd, I'd get paranoid or like panic attacks when I'd smoke weed uh, and it would just overtake me. And that's where the shivering comes in. You know, I, I could have been sitting in a room that was 75 degrees. And if I was high, I'd just be shaking like a leaf, you know, cold. And, and I couldn't control it. It was so weird. And it, it, I guess it, it fascinated me that it happened uh, enough to write about it. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's, that's pretty common. Uh, for rock and roll bands to write about their experiences with drugs and drinking and stuff. So uh, I, I think it was, especially being 
at the forefront of what they now call stone or stoner rock. You know, I don't know that I don't think floodgate was a pure stoner rock band, but I have heard people say that they feel like we were one of the pioneers of that genre. So I guess maybe because we came out when we did and got lumped into it because it's black Sabbath influenced rock and roll. I don't know. Uh, Again, I, you know, here, here I am. I was in Exhorter and Exhorter's credited as being a pioneer in, in its genre. And here's Floodgate comes along and credited as being a pioneer in its genre. And, you know, every, it seems like every band, I'm in trouble. You know, Alabama Thunderpussy, all these bands are pioneers of what they did. I'm like, when am I going to be a pioneer at learning how to find bags of gold? <laughs> Or you just need to quit being ahead of the game so much. Let let the pioneers lay the foundation so you can come in and collect the riches. So then we have the uh, the big hit, Days Into My Nights. It was a big hit in Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Um, it's funny because I want to say that, that was our feature single. And uh, I, mean, I, I think it's absolutely a really good, strong single. And... Um, I want to say maybe two or three months after things really started, obviously showing that our relationship with Roadrunner was at its end. I got a call from Monty saying, Hey man, I know things hadn't been that great, you know, and, and case is really not too high on the band, but uh, I said, the simple fact of the matter is, is that floodgates are hitting Cleveland right now. So what are you talking about? He said, there's a radio station and they started spinning the song. And it's been getting requested every night. It's been in the top 10 for like two weeks every night because it's all like, you know, request oriented. And there we were sandwiched between Metallica and Danzig and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Tool, like right up there with everybody. I'm like, thank God this is, you know, you. I remember it just re- reminded me of a story where Wild Cherry that did play that funky music, White Boy, that was that song wasn't even the single. It was a B-side, I think. And some college radio DJ just happened to play it and it caught on like wildfire. Um, and that I was like hoping that this would have the same effect that stations, because stations do tend to copy each other. And if they see that this one over here is playing a hit that we're not playing, well, we want to play that too and be a part of this. So I was hoping that that would happen. We went and played a show up in Cleveland at the Agora Theater with Gilby Clark and somebody else. And I was like, you know, hopefully this is our get into Cleveland, become somebody in Cleveland, and then the dominoes just start falling. Well, don't you know, we get up there, play the show, then the radio station goes out of business and closes. And then no other station picked it up. Was this uh, the work of Mark Abramson pushing this song to the the radio station? You know, I'm not sure if Mark was behind that or not. Uh, I'm sure he had some kind of play in it. Uh, I love Mark. Mark's a good friend of mine, and uh, and uh, he's another one that's always believed in me. But you know, I I'm not sure who initiated that push, or if it just happened to be somebody called up and said, "You got Floodgate," and the DJ said, "Well, we can find it." You know, it could be that simple. I really don't know the backstory on it. I just remember being shocked that. Oh well, we've got life. We got a pulse still with this record label. Let's make it better. It's a great song, like you said, and I think the the radio edit really uh, lends itself to focusing on how hooky it is, too. You know. Yes. Yeah. That that middle section. In hindsight, I look back on on that that middle section, and that was actually my contribution musically to that song because uh, Kevin and and Steve Fisher wrote the rest of it and then i wrote that middle section um and then you know of course the vocals and lyrics i wrote but uh in hindsight i think that that song didn't need that middle section that breakdown that that heavy thing and uh if i if i had a do-over i would have just streamlined it and done something more like the radio edit that's all that song really needed the dawn for me for for learning how to become a songwriter and i had so much to say that I remember when I first sent a demo to Borovoy Kriggan for him to hear it, because he was 
always really helpful in trying to promote me and my stuff and a fan of it too, you know, and he would give me critical uh, input without worrying about hurting my feelings. That's, that's just who Bora Boy is. And I appreciate that because I don't want anybody to lie to me and tell me it's great if they don't think it's great, you know? So he would tell me like, I got some advice for you. He said, stop and take a breath. What are you talking about? He goes, dude, you're singing over everything. Every part you're singing over. Like joked, I was like, I got a lot to say right now. He goes, I, I get that. He said, but you need to let the music breathe sometimes. And so I thought about it. And of course, I'm like, I'm young. I'm like, what the fuck does he know? Doesn't even play in a band. But he was right. And I started being a lot more mindful about uh and and, and my, my solution at the time was we'll just add more measures. We'll add measures that don't have vocals and give me some breathing room and some time for the song to grow and develop. And all it did was make the songs longer. <laughs> so now in retrospect, I look back, it's like, this part doesn't need to be here. I, if I could go back and clean that song up again, that album up again, without offending a lot of longtime fans, I, you know, I'd consider it, but uh, it, what it did, it just made me a better songwriter moving forward. So then we have a Before the Line Divides, and the biggest thing with this is, and you kind of touched on it earlier, maybe answered my question before I could ask it, is it has those like weird vocal like in-between lines. Is that you doing that like effect? Oh, yeah, I, I, I did the uh, I did both vocal parts on that. Uh, now, when we play it live, Kevin and Steve would sing it together, and the two, two voices, they would sing it differently to make it sound like, you know, an effect, but... Uh, but yeah, I, I sang it on a totally different microphone and then we put a little distortion on it uh, to give it that bullhorn kind of sound effect. It was purposely written that way for crowd participation. <laughs> and uh, and that was, I want to say, that was the first song that we all worked on together as a band because uh, Steve and Neil came in and learned our material and then then we started writing together. And But it was literally the first song that we all four of us collaborated on and made as a, a band and from there i think those were the best songs that we did uh but that was definitely the first one where where it was a, a team effort from a songwriting aspect it's probably my favorite song on the album because it has that opening riff and then it kind of you kind of forget about it and then it builds in and it comes back in with that riff with you doing somewhat of a more aggressive scream over it and i think that that's really yes. sick you have the song Hole on here that kind of sounds like it might be like a, you know, like your planet caravan off a of paranoid kind of thing. Yeah, that was not the original intention for that song. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I did a demo version. I wrote that song. Um, I did a demo version by myself with an acoustic guitar. And uh, uh, I think Kevin played bass on the demo version. But, uh, you know, I did guitar and tambourine and me singing two vocal parts but it, it didn't have the vocals through the leslie with that watery kind of uh planet caravan effect i think i think the planet caravan effect came in third party through through roadrunner and through the producer i think it was it was intended i i used to really fight hard against people taking other albums and listening to it and you know listen to a over here and b over here and you know, what can we do to make b more like a and I, I was always like no stop that i want my album to be my album i don't want to copy anybody i think that's that's so lame to me but you know you get enough people uh with enough of a, a hand and say so uh, enough cooks in the kitchen that eventually somebody's going to have their ingredients put in, whether you like it or not, and you have to compromise. So that, you know, I, I think it sounds great. I really do. But a little too much like playing a caravan for my taste. It was never my intention. Well, and that goes into Second Guesser, which is my favorite song. In fact, I want an album of these. Yeah, that was mine. That, I wrote that, that whole song. That was mine for sure. Uh, that was the, the punk style uh, coming through strong. And uh, I, I really fell in love with punk from the time I was 15, uh, you know, on into my 20s. 
and uh, you know, the majority of the influence in the music that I wrote was probably heavy metal or you know, bluesy rock metal. But I always cling to my punk roots, and I felt like that song definitely was the most punk of all the songs on that album. Yeah, that's the thing is that it like, you know, it definitely has that punk aspect, so I wouldn't argue that at all. But even the vocals are consistently more aggressive and different than any other song on here. It's even different than when you do the more like exhortery screams on some of the songs. You know, it's it's got its own flavor to it. And it almost kind of sounds like uh, not too different from the vein of what the Vision of Disorder album that comes out this same year on Roadrunner kind of had going. Where it's like a little grungy, but also got the groove aspect to it grunge was so big and powerful and hair metal was starting to really be looked at as just nothing but cheese and thrash was dying. So I, I think what you had was you just had so many different genres that you could fit into a new band. Uh, but the balance had to be just right because I, I remember there were some bands that that cr did cross genre kind of stuff. And it, it worked better for some than others. I, I, I like to think that uh, the little sprinklings of punk that we put in to that album, the little sprinklings of, uh, you know, the growly kind of aggressive extreme music w was there just enough. But the main ingredient of the floodgate penalty album was bluesy pentatonic rock, you know, with, you know, with, with a little bit more attack, perhaps, you know? Sure, sure. So uh, that, I think the fact that the rest of it was flavor, but the meat and potatoes was just rock and roll, you know? I, I think that's probably what's given that album uh, the, uh, the shelf life that it's had. Feel You Burn, the lyrics in the lyric book just say, do it a bunch of times. And then the lyrics on the song sound like you're either murdering or BDSM sexual it, it's, deviancy. It was actually, um, it was actually uh, just a thinly veiled sexual reference. Uh, I thought the lyrics were kind of cheesy. So I felt silly writing them out. It's just about, it's just about, it's more or less about wanting to have sex with somebody and the, the, uh, the, the fantasy that builds up in that and uh, the tension that builds up with maybe uh, someone that you're attracted to, but don't have the opportunity or the, the right to, <laughs> I don't know. It, like that's kind of where, uh, where I drew the inspiration for that one. It's, it's a, it's a really groovy kind of serpentine feeling song. And so it just made me feel like, you know, sex. And, and I, I've never been one to really write a lot about sex or like beautiful girls and stuff. I always kind of felt silly writing that kind of stuff. So I guess maybe we chose not to put the lyrics because I, I think I was just uncomfortable with, with having sexual <laughs> lyrics on my album. But it's not even in, in retrospect, it's really pretty tame. You know, there's nothing really bad. It's just if you listen to it and you just imagine some dude imagining that he's, you know, going to get with the girl he's after at the time. <laughs> that's kind of what it's about. Yeah, it's some more intense than like a Kiss song or something like that. Yeah, Kiss likes, you know, to, you know, I want to put my log in your fireplace kind of stuff. It, <laughs> And, and that's the, the, the part that I, you know, honey, that's no pistol. That's my love gun. <laughs> I, I just don't, I feel weird sometimes doing that kind of stuff. I, I'm actually starting to experiment a little bit more with it now that I'm doing solo stuff on my own, writing my own songs without a band. It's just Kyle Thomas, KT or whatever it is. And, and I, I don't feel as, uncomfortable or weird about it uh i don't know maybe maybe that's the catholic upbringing in me i just carry a lot of catholic guilt in my life whether i'm a practicing catholic or not not the first song where you talk about balls either that you've written so that's cool. no you're you're correct <laughs> <laughs> so then the album yeah, closes with a uh, black with sin that kevin does a lot of vocals on which is cool that you guys have kind of the trading off thing going on right 
Yes, yes, Kevin. Uh, I wrote I wrote the music for Black with Sin, and as I was in the process of writing it, Kevin came up to me and said, "Have you got anything for this yet?" I said, "I got some ideas, but what you got?" And and he he had written the verses out and and so he's like he's like can i just take a crack at it if you don't like it you know just throw it out and i was like yeah yeah and he we we rehearsed it and he sang it i was like dude that is so badass and i was so proud that my brother was singing lead in this band and i was like you know i had greater expectations for that to happen more with the second album um and uh so we we recorded his parts in the studio and uh and then i built my parts you know basically the choruses and the middle section i sing and kevin sang the verses i I remember in the studio the the producer eli was asking me he's like so he's gonna sing this i was like yeah he goes well why don't you just sing it i'm like well first of all they're, they're his parts he wrote them and it's like yeah but you're the singer i'm like dude that's i'm singing all over this album come on you know and he's like okay whatever you want you know it's just it's like i'm just giving you you know input and options you know i was like well the option is my brother's gonna sing this song you know and and i'm glad we did it's i i mean it would be silly for me to deliver what my brother felt when he was writing that stuff especially since he's a capable and good singer you know um the promotional cassette that uh preceded the album and also the you know import versions of this also had a another song on here called demons come yeah that one was uh that was on our second demo and we love like live that that song was always a hit live uh and we tracked it for the album and uh we also tracked uh the sublime and the hollow from the first demo uh and it didn't make it to the uh to the album i never even like finished recording the vocal. I don't even think I started recording the vocals for it. We just fell in love with newer songs, and that was a long one, and it didn't make it. And and Demons Come, I think it didn't translate as well in the studio as it did live. Uh, maybe it's just the way we recorded it at the time. But uh, there there was just a lot better songs, I think. Uh, so it just ended up being a bonus track. We've kind of gone over certain changes you would have made. You know, I don't want to say regrets that you have, but things you may have done differently with the record. But what's something that you're most proud about on this time of your life and with this band and with this album? The proudest thing that I have about the whole floodgate penalty to floodgate thing was. I, I think mostly that. Not only that, I was able to to front a project where. I was a major songwriter as, as well as a guitar player, you know, so I got to be a musician as well as a singer, but I got to do it with my brother. And uh, that was to me, the most special part of it. And like, you know, there've been talks over the last few years of doing it again. And, you know, I, I, I'd be happy to do it again if the situation and the circumstances and the demand called for, for it at you know it would have to make sense but i i can't see myself ever doing that without my brother's involvement so if my brother's not in i'm not in you said you were born and raised in new orleans correct so did you ever go see ernie ladd wrestle <laughs> you know i never did see mid-south wrestling live but i watched it a lot on television especially at my grandmother's house because she watched lawrence welk and not that lawrence welk isn't wasn't awesome but at the time i wasn't feeling it i was 11 12 year old kid you know and i don't want to watch lawrence welk <laughs> so she said well if you don't want to watch this you can go watch something in my bedroom on the television and mid-south wrestling was always on at the same time so i started watching it there and i can remember as a kid my my mother didn't think much of it my dad didn't think much of it oh that's fake that's fake it's but i watched it i'm like real who gives a shit it's fun <laughs> and you know so junkyard dog ted dibiase mr wrestling too ernie ladd big cat uh, jim hacksaw doug and that was all a really big part of my tweener into teenage years 
Thanks to Kyle for taking us back to 1996 with the short-lived but highly impactful Floodgate album, Penalty. You can actually take vocal lessons straight from the legend himself at exhorterkyle.com or win a free one by following Meet Meet Pod on Instagram for details. And hey, speaking of free stuff, it's free as hell to go on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review, and it's also very nice of you. Next week, we keep on dripping in 1996 with Vision of Disorder and their self-titled debut, Vision of Disorder, a.k.a. The Green Drip. So I'll talk to you next and every Wednesday right here. I'm Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meet. And yes, that's the best I could come up with. Bye!